Awesome to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of being on staff here at Wellspring. Uh, if you are a kid and want to hang out with some other kids, uh, we got some folks back there. Uh, Matt, I think, is with the fourth and fifth graders. Uh, if, you're, if you're under fourth or fifth, uh, Keziah and Trish are over there. They'd love to hang out with you. Uh, if you're an adult and you're looking for seats, um, there's, there's a row right there, like four rows in on the right, and then there's some seats over here as well if you would like to sit. If you'd like to stand, feel free to. Uh, we'll try and keep it quick. Uh, so one of the things we're doing in this season, we just started last week a series called, uh, you know, it's about the messiness of God. Messy church merciful God. And we're going to dive into 1 Corinthians. What we did last week is we looked at the life of Paul a little bit. So we said, okay, if we're going to understand 1 Corinthians, we need to understand both the person sending the letter and a little bit of the context. So we looked at Paul. Now this week, we're going to look at a third party's account of Paul in Corinth. And again, what we're trying to do is set some of the foundation. We're trying to build some of the scaffolding so that next week when we get to uh, verses 1-1, we're we kind of have some sense of where we're going and who's writing the letter. Uh, because if we don't, we're going to be really likely to make assumptions about the Corinthians and Paul based on our experience. Let me just give you like a, just a quick modern example. Who here, if it rains, grabs an umbrella when you go outside? Just raise your hand. So a couple of us, some people, not everyone. I like it. All right. Some people like getting soaked. I, um, I think it's reasonable to grab an umbrella. Like, makes sense, right? Now, when I moved up to Western Washington, I learned something quickly. When you, go, when you live in Western Washington, it rains, let's say, 10 months straight in the year. So you'd think more rain equals more umbrella use. I was quickly proved wrong. See, in Western Washington, if you use an umbrella, you're quickly labeled as a tourist. Because very few people actually use umbrellas in Western Washington. My point is this. When you grow up in a certain environment, you make assumptions about what it's like to do life. And what we're trying to do by looking at the life of Paul and now looking at Acts 18 is get a sense of, okay, so what's really going on in that context? So we don't just presume to think, oh, that's obviously what Paul meant, or that's obviously what's going on there with the Corinthians. Make sense? All right. This is how Acts 18 begins. This is just verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And we're going to stop there because this has a lot of implications. All right, so Paul's on a missionary journey. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit. He's in a place called Athens, uh, and he's going to a place called Corinth. Should be a little map uh, that comes up here, right? So Corinth is circled. It's about 50 miles from Athens to Corinth, right? So that's kind of like walking from here to downtown Salinas and back, Right? So Paul's on this journey, this long journey to Corinth. Now what I want to do this morning, before we dive into verse 2, is actually tease out a little bit about what this place Corinth is like. So in order to do that, I want to do a little doodle over here, because I think it'll help us give a little bit of sense. So one of the first things about Corinth that we need to know is that uh, it, can you guys see this? I'm trying to experiment with how to get the See if Paul can see it. Paul, can you see this? Now? Well, good luck. All right. <laughs> That's about as good as I can get it. There we go. You can't see me, but maybe you can see it a little. All right. 
So one of the things that's central about Corinth is it's on the overland trade route between Asia and Italy, right? So people go through here and there's this little land bridge that connects Athens and Corinth, right? So they would do this overland trade route and the distance between the western edge of the Peloponnese and the, the closest side on Italy is six miles, right? Six miles between here and here. So it's really short. So what happens is the Corinthians, this is ancient Corinthians, this is not the Corinthians of the first century, this is ancient before that. What they decide is in order to really make some See, if you go around, if you sail around the Cape of Malia, you take six extra days to go around this way versus go through this way. It's also, there was a proverb in the ancient world that if you see Malia twice, you die. Basically, this is super dangerous. So what the ancient Corinthians did is they built basically a road that went across this little land bridge, right? They created a little road, and what they would do is you'd take boats, and they'd have these rollers. So you'd get off your boat, and you'd sort of roll across this bridge, and then you would go through the water here, and you could cross six miles, and you'd get to Italy really quick. So what you see from this, hopefully, how central Corinth is to the trade going from Asia to Italy. Now, this becomes really important. Because uh, Corinth is actually sacked in, I think, 146 BC, and then it's refounded in 44 BC. And it's refounded by Julius Caesar. And Caesar's an interesting guy. So, one of the things he does when he refounds an area is he basically, as a way to depopulate Rome, because Rome is always growing and getting too big, a way to depopulate is you take military folks, former slaves and slaves, and you take them out of Rome and bring them into the new founded place. So now you have to imagine, Corinth is refounded because of its economic centrality in the Roman Empire, and you get a bunch of freed former slaves and slaves coming into this area. So one of the things that they see is, ah, this is an opportunity. That's economic opportunity. So you have tons of money that floods into Corinth when it's refounded. And you have all these people that, you know, if you're in the military, if you're a former slave or a slave, you have a real opportunity to make some serious cash, right? Awesome trade route, great opportunity. So what happens? You have, because you don't have a landed aristocracy right now, right? Because it's been... This has been sacked. So now you have an aristocracy of money that forms in Corinth. And by the first century, this is like a massive part of their cultural moment. You have tons of money, tons of influence through money, and then you have this entrepreneurial culture that forms, right? Because you have all these people that are moving there, restarting their lives. They have the Roman dream, right? They're coming in there. They get this economic opportunity. They're excited. But it becomes really entrepreneurial, really competitive, really driven by money, really autonomous, right? You have all these people coming in there. We're going to make some serious money. And that shapes the culture in profound ways, as we'll see. What you also see is that there's a high value for rhetoric. Now, if you're in the Greek world, you would know, like, rhetoric is basically the highest value in the academic environment. So you go to university, you study rhetoric, well, you're like cream of the crop, you're really studying the good stuff. But classical rhetoric is a little different than what's happening in Corinth. The point of classical rhetoric is basically to argue for the truth, effective communication of the truth. That's not really what's happening in first century uh, Corinth. There's a whole group called the sophists. And the sophists are all about not effective communication of truth, but winning arguments. 
And what they do is they go around, now they find these wealthy patrons that will sponsor them. And they're going in there and they are just trying to win arguments regardless of what is true and what is false. So not only do you have this entrepreneurial culture, but you have this self-promotion culture happening. And you have these sophists, and they're kind of like a mix between a movie star, a professor, and a salesman, right? They have their brand, they're popular, and they're creating this culture that is overvalues knowledge and wisdom at the cost of love and respect and truth. Corinth, in the first century, when Paul arrives, is also religiously really diverse. So archaeologists have found 26 different sites where people would worship. Now, one of the things that's really unique about their expression of worship that's really different than us is in order for you to be sort of an authorized religion in the Roman world, you had to come from basically an ethnic group, right? So every ethnic group had a particular religious practice. In our world, we say, do you like it? Do you believe in it? Do you think it's true? And you say, yeah or no, whatever. In their world, who are your people? Right? Who are your people? Oh, that's what you believe. That is how the world works. Right? So if, if a religion is approved in the ancient world, it's like got an ethnic origin, and then it comes in, it's like, okay, that one's okay. Right? So Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 that there are many gods and many lords in Corinth. So if you walked around, there's all these different opportunities to worship or not worship gods. Religiously diverse. The other, the last thing is, the, there are three major games that happen in the ancient world in Greece. One is the Olympics. We're familiar with that one. The other one, the second biggest in Greece, is called the Isthmian Games. Now, the Isthmian Games are very similar. You would have people from all over the ancient world that were coming to Corinth to see these games. One of the games that I find really interesting is they would have a woman, there would be two horses, and a woman would be standing on one horse, and they'd be running super fast. And in the midst, she would jump from one horse to the other horse while they were going as fast as they could, right? Pretty cool game. I would definitely pay to see it. Anyway. <laughs> so you have these games. And because of a few different historical clues, we know that Paul ends up in Corinth between 8049, which is one of the Isthmian games, and he's probably there for 51. Uh, so he's likely there during this time when all these people are flooding Corinth to see these incredible athletes. Now we also know when Paul arrives, 1 Corinthians 2-3, he says this, he arrived in weakness, in much fear, and much trembling. Now we don't know exactly why Paul arrives afraid, and weak, and shivering. Uh, trembling, I don't know, shivering sounds fun. All right, we don't know why he describes himself this week, and we don't exactly know what is going on for Paul. But we do know this, this is how Luke describes his actual entry into Corinth, it says this, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Saturday and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now in verse two through four, what we get is a basic window into how Paul operated when he comes into a new place. First thing he does is look for work, right? And he finds uh, Priscilla and Aquila who are fellow tent makers. 
Uh, it's possible he works for them. It's possible he works alongside of them. Uh, they're expelled from Rome by Claudius because they are Jewish. Some theologians think they have businesses in Ephesus, Corinth, and Rome. So they're decent business people. We don't know exactly, but we'll know that they'll be in those three different spots uh, through the New Testament. Now, Paul meets them here, uh, and they become great friends, right? You'll see these names popping up in other letters that Paul writes. We also know in verses 2 through 4 that when Paul first arrives in a town, he visits the synagogue, and he tries to reason with them. This makes sense, right? Paul is Jewish, right? He's discipled. He's a Pharisee. He's discipled by a rabbi, Gamaliel. Paul is exceptionally good at sort of going through the Old Testament, reasoning in this kind of cultural environment. So the synagogue then becomes his base of operations as he comes into a new city. Verses 5 through 8, this is how Luke continues telling the story. When Silas and Timothy, Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. For now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Christians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Right? So Paul comes into town. He meets Priscilla and Aquila. He starts preaching in the synagogue. At about that time, Silas and Timothy join him. So Paul started his journey in Syria, comes up with Silas. He meets Timothy in Derby for the first time. He joins the entourage, right? They keep going, but then they part ways for a few reasons we'll get into uh, in, Th in Thessalonica, uh, which is in northern Greece. And then they come down likely carrying gifts from Philippi, uh, which is the Thessalonian church, or the Philippi is the church. It's right above Thessalonica. And they bring these gifts. And these gifts are what enables Paul now to focus exclusively on preaching and teaching and do a lot less tent making. Now, it makes sense, right, that as he's now investing himself more in preaching and teaching, that both the fruit and the opposition increase, right? He's not divided. He's not making a tent over here and then rushing back to the synagogue. He is full on engaged at the synagogue, now, Luke tells us the Jewish people get abusive with Paul in the synagogue. This word abusive is interesting. It's kind of fun. It's, it's where we get the root of the English word blaspheme, right, to speak against. So they're blaspheming against Paul. And what does he do? He has this great line, right? He like shakes out his garments. I was trying to think of like how to do that in this attire. You kind of really need like some sort of, you know, if I had a huge dress or something, I could shake it out. Uh, a coat. It's hard to do with this, but he kind of shakes it out. And what he's trying to say essentially is, I don't want one speck of dust from this synagogue to be on my clothes. Like, I am done with you guys. And then he says this, right? Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. See, Paul knows he has been invited by God to share about Jesus with this group of people. He knows he is called to do that. God has said, you do this. And Paul's like, okay. And now as he's leaving, he just wants to be utterly clear with them. Hey, I have done what I was supposed to do. It's on you guys now. You've heard the message. Now you can say yes or no or whatever, but it's on you. I'm no longer taking responsibility for you guys. 
And he says, I, I'm going to go work among the Gentiles. And the truth is, he doesn't have to go very far, right? Because the house literally next door to the synagogue has a guy who's a, he, the text says that he is a worshiper of God or a God worshiper. Likely means he's a Gentile. And what he's been doing is he's been hanging out at the synagogue, listening to Paul, and he's like, yes, I'm in. So now, Paul likely makes his base of operations next door to the synagogue at this guy's house. And then what, right? The head of the synagogue, this guy named Crispus, he's been listening to Paul and he's like, I'm in too. Luke says in verse 8, many more Corinthians believe. But we don't know exactly who these people are. We don't know if they're from Paul's tent making work. Like he's hung out with these guys and now they're coming. We don't know if it's from the synagogue. We don't know if it's... I don't know, anyone else's friends, acquaintances, we don't know how they show up. But we do know this, many of them believe. Right? And belief in the New Testament isn't, I believe one plus one equals two. Right? This is not purely information. This is about trust. Saying, these people not only believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but now they trust him with their lives. They're reorienting their lives around who Jesus is as Messiah. Right? And they start to gather. Now, before we get into verse 9, I think we need to do a bit of a, uh, a, a little more background in Acts 16. 16 through 18, which is Paul's journey to Corinth. So, Paul comes out of northern Syria and he arrives in Derby. And when he's in Derby, he meets this guy named Timothy. Timothy joins him. Right? But then they, they keep going from Derby. Right? They, Paul, as he's going up there, he has this vision from God. You should go into northern Greece, into Macedonia. So he goes. Right? And then he ends this place called Napolis, which is up in the north, if you can see it. Should be the next slide. Yeah, Napolis. And when he's there, there's this one named Lydia, and she converts. But at that same time, they're beaten and they're imprisoned. at the end of this, Paul says, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, right? And then he's let go and they apologize to him. So then he goes down to Thessalonica and he's there and this mob rises up against him, right? This mob comes out and says, Paul, we don't want you here. And they basically chase him out of town. Now, I want you to imagine this a little bit. You're on this journey, you've taken this huge risk. God directs you into Northern Greece. You get there. The first town you show up in, you're imprisoned and you're beaten. The second town you show up in, you're chased around by a mob. Then you go down to Berea, and again, now the people from Thessalonica, the mob follows and chases you out, of, out again. And Silas all right, and Timothy stay up there. They hang out, but Paul goes down to Athens. And by the time he gets to Athens and then goes to Corinth, he says he's weak, he's trembling, he's afraid. This has been a hard trip. I mean, just sort of imagine, take Paul out of first century superhero grid, and put him into normal human grid. He's you going through this. You'd be pretty worn out, right? If mobs were chasing you, if you were beaten and imprisoned for something. And it's in this moment that Luke writes, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And Paul's afraid. 
Paul's wondering, should I stop doing this? Like, literally, I'm getting imprisoned and chased. Now this synagogue's rebelled against me. What should I do? And what does God do? God shows up, says to him, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Paul, don't give up. I know you want to. You're thinking about, should I just stick to tent making, you know? Paul says, don't. God says, don't give up. Keep speaking. Keep teaching. Right? Why? Because God is with him. He's like, Paul, I'm going to be with you. And guess what, Paul? You might not see it right now, but there's all kinds of people in this city that I have, are, are going to respond to the gospel you share. Don't give up, Paul. What does Paul do, right? He stays there for another 18 months. He stays in Corinth longer than he stays in any other place. What's interesting, though, is God says this. He says, no one is going to attack or harm you. But he doesn't say they won't try. Because this is what happens next. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many more days, or many days longer. All right. So imagine it, right? Paul's next door. Now the people are like, man, this thing is growing. We got to do something. But they do something different here. In Thessalonica and Berea, what do they do? They get mobs and they try and chase them. They don't do this in Corinth. And this has huge implications. So what they do is they say, all right, we're going to get the governor involved. So they go to the governor. Now, what they're essentially trying to do, if you remember earlier, how does religion function in the Roman Empire? It has to come out of like an ethnic group, right? So what they're trying to do is disconnect the early church from Judaism. Then it starts to be on really shaky legal ground. And if Gallio says, yeah, no, 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 you're not connected to Jew the Jews, this is going to create a precedent in the ancient world. So every time Paul goes into a city, they're going to all know, oh, this is the religion that Gallio ruled on, who's a famous guy in the ancient world. Oh, he already ruled on this. Yeah, we can't tolerate these people. Really important. Instead, what does he say? No, 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 this is a Jewish argument. So what he's doing is he's looping the early church into Judaism. So then it basically gives Paul the next 10 years to have safer experiences. It's not going to be super easy, but it's a lot easier than it could have been if Gallio had ruled against him. And what does Paul do? He hangs out for the next 18 months. He builds a church here. Right? And then he'll leave and he'll come back and we'll get 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and there's other letters out there that we don't have. Now, we don't just go through sort of Acts 18 just to sort of scaffold, right, for our sermon next week. Otherwise, we could just be done now. It's like, okay, we got the basic stuff, you know. Uh, that's what makes this different from a seminary class or different from a class you might attend. Like, what we're interested in is not simply the information, but how does who God is in this text speak into our everyday life? So, what do we learn about God in this passage and how he interacts with Paul? There are three things I want to highlight. The first is this. God speaks. You notice that? 
right? God speaks. He speaks to Paul when he's in Asia, right? Paul's going up through Turkey. God says, come to Macedonia through a vision to Paul. He speaks to him. And then when Paul's in weakness, he's afraid, he's struggling as he enters Corinth. What does God do? He speaks to him. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. I just think sometimes we assume Paul is some sort of like first century superhero saint. But the thing is, God would not say to him, do not be afraid, unless Paul was afraid. Right? Paul is afraid. I don't know, you, you probably know what fear feels like. That's how Paul felt. He was afraid. And even though God has called Paul, he's like, go, Paul, go throughout the Mediterranean, right? Go throughout Asia Minor, go throughout Greece, share the gospel, and we see all these incredible things Paul does. What does God say to him? Don't stop speaking. Why? Paul is tempted to stop speaking. God doesn't say this unless Paul is actually like, man, I wonder if I should just throw in the towel. Paul, superhero saint of the first century, is afraid and he's thinking about quitting. And it's into that moment that God speaks to him. Paul, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. Paul, keep speaking. Even if you're afraid, keep speaking. And I just, I just, I guess, wonder this morning, like, how you come into the room. Right? Paul entered into Corinth. He was afraid. How do you come into church today? What's going on for you? What emotions do you feel? Are you afraid? Are you trapped? Are you hopeless? Are you excited? Are you joyful? How do you come into the room this morning? And I also just wonder, like, what has God said to you in the past that you're tempted to give up on? Do you have a sense of how God has called you? Are there things that you're like, God's like, do this, and you're like, okay, you do it for a day, and then you're like, I am done, and you've sort of left it in the back. Are there things that you have stopped doing because you gave up at some point that God might want to speak into? How do you think God would show up for you this morning, how you come into this room and how he has called you? Do you have a sense? I would encourage you this week, even as we enter worship, just to slow down and ask God to speak. Now you might be wondering like, so what does that look like? Uh, I would say a couple things. One, right, God often uses words, right? And it's often not like an audible voice, but maybe something that you hear, a silent voice that you hear. Billy Graham once said, we often know when God speaks when we feel this deep inner conviction. It's like, oh, you know, it's like a spiritual chiropractor. God says something and it's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's it, yeah? You just kind of know. Sometimes he uses words. Do not be afraid. Sometimes he uses pictures, right? When Paul decides to go into Greece, what does he see? A vision of a Macedonian man who speaks to him. Sometimes God uses pictures to speak to us. Sometimes God uses scripture. When I went into my Sabbath this last Friday, I was feeling pretty like down, kind of worn out emotionally. And I 
which was in the Psalms a little bit, and I read Psalm 42, and it's like, why are you downcast, O my soul? And in that moment, I was like, oh, God, you see me. I felt like as I read that, I felt like God sees me in my tiredness, in my downness. And then the next verse is like, put your hope in God. And it was this moment of like, hey, I think God is inviting me to trust him, even if I don't feel all that great this morning. Sometimes God speaks to us through scripture. But I think what's clear to me though, is that God wants to speak to us, but there's all kinds of other voices speaking to us too, aren't there? And I guess I would ask you, like, what other voices are you tempted to listen to? The Corinthians go up to Paul and they're like, dude, you got to get out of here. They're trying to intimidate him. They're trying to make him afraid. And Paul has a choice. Do I listen to these Corinthians who are trying to push me out? Or do I listen to the speaking voice of God? And I guess I would ask you this morning, who do you listen to? God is wanting to speak to you about what's going on in your life. Do you feel like you're hearing his voice? When is the last time you heard, you felt like God said, ah, this is who I know you are. Who defines your identity? Is it God or the culture we're in? Secondly, God's speaking is often connected to his mission in the world. So God speaks, but God also sends. You notice that? When God is speaking to Paul, he's sending him, right? Through the Macedonian vision, right? The Macedonian guy comes up to him and he sends him into northern Greece, right? God speaks, Paul go here and Paul goes. Also, right, when he gets into Corinth, what does he say? Paul, I'm going to send you not to back to Turkey. I'm going to send you here, plant, dig deeper, submerge yourself in this culture, be here. There's people here I have for you. Paul sends him not away, but more deeply into the place he already is. In both instances, God sends Paul. And this sending really matters, doesn't it? I think sometimes we can hear something like this, okay, yeah, sent, you know. But listen to Paul's response. He's teaching in the synagogue. And then what does he say? He knows he's sent there. What does he say? Your blood be on your own heads. And we think, what? Why? Because the message that Paul has carried, why he sent, actually matters. Right? One day God is going to return, he's going to establish his kingdom, and we're all going to have to respond to God about who we think Jesus is. Where we are sent matters. And Paul knows, hey, your blood be on your own heads. I have shared, I have discharged my responsibility. It matters. And then he goes on, right? He keeps sharing. And I guess I just wondered this morning, where is God sending us? Because it matters. You know, who in your life is God saying, oh, I want you to be my faithful presence with this person? I want you to be my faithful presence in this place. You know, who would you say? And it shifts, right? This is a dynamic thing. Who today, if you were to look in this next week, who do you feel like God is saying, oh, I want you to be my faithful presence with this person this week? Who would that be? God wants to send you. 
God wants you to be his faithful presence in a place too, right? This can just an individual, but it could be in your work, on your block, in your kid's preschool, wherever, among your grandkids. God speaks and he sends. But the truth is, right, like I look at my life and I look at your life and I think, you know, who really controls where we go? Like I, I wonder if it might be helpful this week to do a bit of a journaling exercise of like, all right, who really is sending you? I think there's all kinds of people that are trying to undermine God's sending in our life, right? Think about it with the Corinthians, right? They're trying to send Paul away. <laughs> and God's like, no, stay here. Who does Paul listen to? Who are the people in your life that dictate how you spend your time and where you go? And I guess I would ask you, are those people actually in line with where God is sending you or are they pulling you off course? We all have all kinds of people in our lives and we can listen to them or not listen to them. Who influences what you do with your day? And is that in line with God's invitation to you or are you just caving into peer pressure? Are you caving into all the shoulds that dominate and sort of float about in your world because you feel some sort of pressure to please them versus God? God speaks, God sends, and when he sends, he also supports. Paul, as he's going up, he's not sent alone in through Syria and into Turkey. He's sent with Silas. He doesn't go alone. And then as he's going, right, he adds Timothy to the bandwagon, right? Now they're all going up there. But there's all kinds of tension that happens, right? With this mob. And so Silas and Timothy stay up in Thessalonica and Berea. And then Paul comes down into Athens and into Corinth. And now he's alone. What's the first thing that God does? He meets Priscilla and Aquila. Before he starts ministry, before he does it, he meets these people who then become his friends. God supports with community. God supports with his presence. God supports as he speaks. Do not be afraid, right? With encouragement. And I guess I just wonder, right? Life is so dynamic. Who has God brought into your life now to help support you? Life changes. People come in and out of our lives and sometimes we're slow to adjust. One of the cool things about doing a church plant here, so we started, you know, two and a half years ago, is I have just seen God support in this place in unbelievable ways. I mean, it's sort of this like, almost like this running joke, like on our staff team. It's like every single person on our staff team now start came here and is like God has brought and then has raised up and now is a part of our staff team. We don't have one person who we're like hiring externally to bring in. It's like God has brought all these people to populate our team and true on all of our volunteers. It's been unreal how God has brought people to support. I know in my life, right, coming down here, I left almost all of my like emotional, spiritual support system to come down here to do this replan. I didn't know how that was going to go. And many of you have been incredibly supportive through this process for me. And there's this one guy named Daniel Louie. He's the area director for InterVarsity. And he and I gather every single Tuesday and we just pray with each other. And I see that as God bringing someone to support me so that I'm faithful in listening to the speaking voice of God. So that 
right? When God has something for me to do, he sends me somewhere, I'm faithful to it because I have someone there I can process with, someone there that can support me, that can pray with me. God doesn't want us to do it alone. I guess I'd ask you this week, like, who has God brought into your life to support you? Would you know? I feel like one of the things that's so true about our cultural moment is that it is so easy to just try and do it alone. And we get so busy and distracted and we're moving and we're moving and we're moving, so much so that we miss out on all the ways God is, one, wanting to be present to us and two, wanting to support us bringing people into our lives so that we can walk with them so that God can be with us through them. Who is that for you? God doesn't want you to do it alone. One of the things that stands out to me about Paul is just how open he is. God speaks and he is open to God's speaking voice and shifting his priorities according to that. Right? When God sends, Paul is open. He's like, all right, I'm open, God. You want me to go that way? I'll go that way. You want me to be with these people? I'll be with those people. And then as God brings support, Paul's like, okay, I receive this. He meets Priscilla and Aquila, and what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to find some of my own friends. He's like, oh, no, God has brought you here into my own life. Right? And they are with Paul, partners with him throughout his journey. And I guess this morning I asked, are you open to God speaking to you? Are you open to God sending you? Are you open to being supported by God? Right, because at every level, there are gonna be other voices. There are gonna be other people that want to send you to do their tasks. And there are gonna be ways that you're gonna be tempted to self-support rather than lean on the people that God wants to give you to support you as you seek him. Now, as we lean into worship, we're going to lean into worship in a minute. I just want us to, uh, the worship team can come up. We're going to celebrate just communion together. So if you're going to help lead with communion, if you want to come over here, that'd be great. So the night uh, before Jesus was tortured and crucified, he met with some of his friends. These were people he was mentoring and discipling and investing in. And when they were at the table, he picked up some bread at the table and he said, this bread is broken for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. He took the bread, he broke it, and he said, take this and eat it. And he took the the wine at the table. He said, this, this is my blood. It will be poured out so that sins may be forgiven. And this morning, as we remember Jesus' sacrifice, we remember his grace. That he offers himself this morning to us. Now, Paul instructed the Corinthians later in the letter. He said, you know, you guys should probably this is like a good opportunity to center yourself in Jesus, but there's also sort of a, an invitation to actually repent before we receive. And what I mean by repent is it's so easy to get distracted. It is so easy to get off course. It is so easy for our heart 
to listen to other voices. It is so easy for us to be sent by other masters. It is easy for us to think, I can support myself without relying on God. And in this moment, Jesus says, listen to my voice. Be sent on my mission. Be supported by my people and my presence. And if you feel like maybe you've drifted from any of those three, this is just a time just to say to God, 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 I need some help. God, I'm sorry that I am trusting in other voices or I am being sent by other masters or I've decided, you know what, God, I want to be supported by you and your people, not just try and do it on my own. So as you come up to communion, I just invite you, think about those things. If there's something maybe you need to say to God. Lord Jesus, in this moment, we just say, you are great. You are glorious. God, we want to hear your voice this morning. God, we want to know, God, how you send us in the world. We want to be a part of your mission. God, we do not want to be spectators. God, we want to participate. And God, in the loneliness, we ask for your support. In our waywardness, we ask for your mercy. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit.